Last thing also, I am with Mandy. I'm sick too, so anything I say that's not cool or weird, that's just the sick talking. Everything else is the Lord. So if I misstep, I just, I just, that's just me. All right, Mandy is my discipler. Okay, so far this weekend, we have discovered that the kingdom of God is the controlling theme of the mission, mission and message of Jesus, right? I'm going to move up just a little bit. Hope this doesn't mess with the sound of my voice. Um, and that if we don't understand the kingdom of God, then we risk misunderstanding Jesus and what he's up to. That's the bigger story of what's going on, that our, that our individual personal, story, personal stories fit into. I love the song that we sang, nothing compares to your embrace. It's very intimate language, very personal, private, you and Jesus hugging. That's great. The next line locates it in the context. Light of the world forever reign. Light of the whole world, of all the cosmos, be the king of everything. My, my embrace that I love with Jesus fits into the context of the cosmic rescue plan of, of God. It's a fantastic song. In fact, the, the lyrics we've been singing this weekend have been so dense and so rich. They line right up with what God's up to in the kingdom. I just have been so blessed by the music. So thanks, praise teams. You guys have been wonderful in serving us, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And of course, none of it's possible without the sound crew who help us to hear it. So there we go. All right. So, with the kingdom of God, we saw that uh, this morning that John the Baptist was the first prophetic voice in 400 years to speak on God's behalf to his people. And his message was, there is one coming after me who is the main event. There is one coming after me who is the main event. And we unpacked who that figure was anticipated to be in the Old Testament. And how both John's preaching and Jesus' words and actions fulfilled and surprised Israel's expectations. We're going to look at some more of that tonight. Now, remember how we said that this image of the Messiah was the centerpiece of the coming kingdom of God. When Messiah comes, all the rest of our hopes will be fulfilled. Messiah will bring, the, the, bring God's kingdom in his back pocket. When Messiah comes, the kingdom is with him. And God's kingdom includes certain realities that Israel had hoped for and longed for for hundreds of years. I'm going to say it over and over again. This was real-time hopes. This was real-world, experienced, physical material in the here and now hopes and expectations that Israel had. Not some, I hope after we die I get to go to the kingdom of God. No, 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 no. It was, I hope that while I'm alive, while I'm raising kids, while I'm doing my job, while I'm going to school, I hope that the kingdom of God would come upon us. I hope that my school would look like God was king. I hope that my family would look like God is king. I hope that my relationships look like God is king. That's what Israel was longing for. Very real-time experience in the here and now. <clears throat> now, these real-time experiences that Israel hoped for, one of the other, another of the leading images that they hoped, another one of the dominant realities of their hope was this, that when Messiah comes... With the kingdom of God, it will be a time of judgment on the wicked. That when Messiah comes, the wicked will get theirs. Because remember, the Messiah comes to resolve the great human story conflict, the cosmic conflict of God's sovereignty, trying to undo and remake and refresh and, and obliterate the effects of the reality of evil. 
This is the, the drama, the backstory into which Jesus comes. And when Messiah comes, he will deal with evil and with the perpetrators of evil. He will deal with the wicked. And as we see in Jesus, he begins the process of the final resolution to the human problem. Now again, if you are a people group who is under the power of, quote-unquote, the nations, different empires oppressing you, squashing you underfoot, as Israel was for much of her history, this was great news. Because the nations, in the prophetic literature, when you come across the nations, the nations are everybody except Israel. There's Israel and everybody else. They're the Gentiles, or in Jesus' day, they're called the Greeks. In the Old Testament, they're called the nations. It's everybody else except for Israel, except for God's people. <clears throat> And so they lump everybody who isn't, quote-unquote, the chosen people into the same group. So when God says in the, in the prophetic literature that he's going to judge the nations, Israel gets it. Because she has been tormented them, by them in her history. In Isaiah 14, <clears throat> verses 5 through 8, this comes in a list of chapters in Isaiah where Isaiah curses those who have oppressed God's people. This is what Isaiah says, speaking on behalf of the Lord. The Lord, and hoping the, the, for the future day. In that day, the Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows, and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon gloat over you, speaking about the nations, and say, now that you have been laid low, no one comes to cut us down. The judgment of God comes with Messiah. Now, this is important. In the scriptures... Judgment is never just random. God's wrath is not when God loses his temper. God doesn't blow, a, blow his lid. He doesn't lose control. He doesn't strike out when he just sort of, it's, I've taken too much, whack. He doesn't do that. He's not like us. God is never out of control. And so God's judgment, God's wrath is never out of control. It is always against a thing in order to protect a thing. That's why the word jealousy is often used in the Old Testament. I am jealous for the good. I have a deep connection to the good. And anything that wrongs the good, I'm opposed to. And he judges that which seeks to destroy the good. This is a real sticking point for a lot of people. The wrath of God but we're inconsistent with it. We're inconsistent with what makes us uncomfortable about it. Because what is your picture of God? Jesus gives us the picture of the Father. The fastest way to get on my bad side is to mess with my boys. You mess with my lookalikes, and we're going to have words. You hurt my kids, and I will do everything in my power to make sure you cannot do it again. If humanity 
are God's lookalikes in creation. How do you think he feels when his lookalikes are messed with? What image do you have of God? It's an image of a protective father. Some images in the Old Testament prophets are of a protective mother, of a mama bear. You don't mess with cubs of God. So some people say, I'm uncomfortable with the wrath of God. You say, really, why? What is, it, what is your image of God? What's, what do you mean, when you say wrath, what do you think that looks like? What do you think God is like? Do we think that God should just let evil happen without consequences? Everyone says, no, no way. Do any of us want evil to win permanently? You say, no, of course not. Okay, if that's true, whether you're a Jesus person or not, if you think, no, I don't think evil should win permanently, then we need someone who can deal with evil without losing control. How many political revolutions happen in world history, in human history, where the, rev where the revolters win the day, they succeed, they overthrow the terrible dictator, and they exact vengeance on the dictator, and they begin to collect power for themselves. And in 20 years, there's a new revolt against them because they have taken the place of the dictator. We need a way of dealing with evil, a way of meeting out justice that is controlled, level-headed, that sees every angle, that errs on the side of mercy, but that will not let evil have the day. We need a God who will not get messed up in handling evil. The God of life works against the powers of darkness and death. And those powers come into the world through us, animate human beings, individuals, communities, even whole nations. Some of you know personally what it's like to experience legitimate evil done against you. I don't know all your stories. I don't know all the context that you bring to camp tonight. I don't know where you're coming from. But don't worry. God is not a God who lets evil off the hook. He swears to you, someone will pay. Somewhere in the cosmos, there is someone keeping score. There is someone who remembers every action and will hold everyone to account. And this is the good news of Jesus. Either you or he will pay for your share of the evil. Every dictator, every civil oppression, every, every parent who did horrible things to their kids will pay. Or they will ask Jesus, would you pay this for me? If you will clean me up, I will give you my life. Please make a, amends of the mess that I've made. And Jesus says, I have. I have taken the punishment. Yes, always evil will get theirs. God will not let evil go unpunished. He is not the kind of God who is so gracious, he says, oh, well, I guess I'll just let this one go. No, he is the perfect, purest mix of mercy 
and judgment. But judgment is there. And so if you're uncomfortable with the judgment of God, I encourage you to expand your imagination of evil. Because the judgment of God comes against what wrecks the beautiful things, what damages what he created to be. The judgment of God means that evil is not going to be allowed to run uncontested or undealt with in your life. Where there is not judgment, there is not a good understanding of good. But if you understand evil, and if you have experienced that personally, and if any of you watch the news or read the newspaper, and you believe that the good is worth fighting for, worth standing up for, worth defending, then you understand that there must be judgment. There must be a reckoning of some kind. And so when Messiah comes and brings God's kingdom with him, it will be a time of judgment on the evil choices. And in particular, where Israel focuses all their attention is judgment on the nations, judgment on everybody else, because everybody else has been wicked to us. And so often when Israel reads Isaiah and his prophecies about what God will do to those who have oppressed his beloved, they say, yeah, get them, God. But you have to read all of the prophets. You have to read the whole Bible, the entire witness of Scripture, to color in the whole picture, because they promise that when Messiah comes, it will also be a time of judgment on Israel. Sounds like John the Baptist. Even Israel, especially Israel, is unprepared for what God is about to do. Look at what Amos has to say. If you read the book of Amos, you better get ready. He is really blunt. He's satirical, he's clever, and he is feisty. Amos 5, starting in verse 18. He talks about the day of the Lord. Remember, that's the, that's the buzz line. Oh, that's when the kingdom of God comes. You know, it's, full of the best of, it's the kingdom of God, we know that. That's our, our flag language. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Wait a minute, what? Doomed are you who long for the day of the Lord? What are you talking about, Amos? Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Um, Amos, I'm not sure if you've understood the story correctly. <laughs> it will be as though a man fled from a lion. Whew, that was close. Only to meet a bear. Oh. As though he entered his house, whew, I'm glad I got away from that, that bear and that lion, and rested his hand on the wall, oh boy, am I tired, and had a snake bite him. Ah! <laughs> Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without any ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice Fellowship offerings. I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. My goodness, really. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. 
He's speaking to Israel. Amos is preaching to God's people. And he's saying, you are perpetrators of wickedness as much as the nations. Your religiosity, your customs, they're a stench to me. You're two-faced. If you read the whole book of, of, of Amos, he talks about the oppression of the poor and the injustice of their societies. There's a reason that Martin Luther King quotes this text about letting justice roll down like a mighty river. What this tells us about God is, again, when it comes to judgment, when it comes to his action against evil, they are not based on ethnocentrism or prejudice or favoritism. God has no favorites. Where you fall in relationship to God's activity against evil has everything to do with your relationship to him, your response to him. And in the New Testament, how you respond to Jesus. His judgments are always against wickedness wherever they're found. Even among, even among, maybe even especially among his chosen people who should know better. So if it's found within Israel, it will be judged there with the same justice as everywhere else. So you end up with prophetic texts that don't play favorites. Isaiah 2, verse 6 through 18, the day of the Lord again. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. And he continues. So again, by the time you get to the intertestamental time of, of, of God's people, this, this 400 year period of God not speaking, you get distortions of this idea. The rabbinic teachers believe they are ready for God. They are the people of God, which means the nations are a lost cause, which makes Israel the righteous one. So they are longing for the day of the Lord. They are hoping for the kingdom to come against Amos's advice. Totally forgetting his warning. Why would you want the day of the Lord to come if you yourselves are invested in wickedness, which is what the action of the Messiah will be against when he arrives? So Israel tended to see themselves as off the hook, diplomatically immune when the Messiah arrives. In the Old Testament, Israel, in this intertestamental time, Israel developed an un unbiblical and ultimately ungodly us versus them mentality. We are God's chosen people. Everybody else is screwed. A huddle of God's people just waiting for God to return and wipe everybody else out because they're so bad and awful and wicked out there. Sounds an awful lot like what people understand Christians to be, doesn't it? Exclusive, us and them. I would argue that a lot of people in the American church are in significant danger of acting like intertestamental Israel, who in our words and actions function as an exclusive club that only clean people get to be a part of and feel welcome at. Clean, in quotes. 
question for us is, what do we look like? What do we look like? Do we look inclusive? Now, here I have to brag on focus. I am impressed. I am impressed. You are setting the bar on what diverse inclusion in the activity of Jesus in the world looks like. I think you folks are phenomenal. I was talking to Travis and Moises about what they're up to at Richland with the Hispanic outreach on that campus, cores that are bilingual to welcome in the Hispanic population on that campus. That sounds like the kingdom of God has come upon them. That looks like what Jesus is up to in the world. I was walking here, and I was walking behind three men in dark. Figured one of them had a flashlight, and I was walking faster, so I caught up to them. And I realized, oh, it's Paulo from, from Sikkim. I remember this guy from Brazil. Yes, soccer. All right, we're together. Yeah, we're good. We're the same spirit of the same heart. And he was walking with two of his friends from China, Jack and Paul. Are you here? Yeah, is that right? Yes. And Paul was like, yeah, I was in my master's classes in finance, and I saw a whole bunch of my class were people from China. And Paulo, being a kingdom of God kind of thinker, said, I should probably learn some Chinese. <laughs> he learns a couple of phrases, and he meets these guys, and now they hang out all the time. And they're exploring Jesus together. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. Inclusion, diversity, welcoming. You want to follow Jesus? Awesome. Ah, God is not exclusive. This is what God is like. He moves heaven and earth so that those who are not yet in his family are given every opportunity to join and to avoid his wrath and judgment against the effects of our own wicked choices. If God is an all-comers kind of God, so should we be, his lookalikes, his children, if we claim to be his people. And that idea is nothing new. It's not like suddenly the New Testament gets here and diversity is celebrated in the Bible. It was like, oh, God was ethnocentric in the Old Testament. Israel's the best. They're the only ones I love. And then the New Testament comes and, hey, Israel's for everybody. No. No, no, no. Remember, God doesn't go through puberty during the intertestamental time and settle down and get nice. Actually, it's, it's, the, it's the other end of puberty where you start to settle down and get nice. Things get crazy, right? In the, remember? <laughs> Junior high, ah! We're all there one day. And I have kids, and they'll be there someday, too. <laughs> Jesus, come, come early, come quickly. <laughs> oh, man. But this idea of, of, of multicultural, diverse inclusion is from day one. Always, even the law, even God's code of what it looks like to be his people is for the nations to observe and say, wow, and join. Remember, we talked about how the, the people of Israel who came out of Egypt were quite a diverse crew. They were mostly Hebrews descended from Abraham, but there were all other kinds of Egyptian slaves who had been oppressed. I mean, Egypt is a super empire. They've conquered all kinds of people, and so all kinds of people are their slaves. And so when the Hebrews leave, and people realize, okay, Egypt's God's zero, the Hebrew God, 10, I think I know what team I want to be on. I'm going with the Hebrews. And all through the Old Testament story, God treats the, the Israelites in such a way that the watching nations say, wow, what a God. Can I play too? Think of the stories. Rahab, she lives in Jericho. And God's people are marching across the desert. And, and the spies come and she hides them. And she says, look, I will hide you. I will risk my neck. I will risk the neck of every person in my family on one condition. I want to be an Israelite. I've heard about your God, and I know we're going to lose. I'm smart enough to do the math. You have not lost yet. 
I would like to be on that team. I want to follow your God. And they make, absolutely, come on, Rahab, absolutely. We will preserve your whole family. You and your family, join the people of God. Ruth, this woman who attaches herself to an Israelite family, she says, your, she says to her mother-in-law, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. All through the Old Testament, there's this notion that the people of God are supposed to be this welcoming, inclusive, come be a part of what God's up to in the world. Come be a part of his new humanity. Come be a part of making all things new with us. But again, it gets distorted over time. It gets distorted over time. And so Israel longs for the day of the Lord, the day of judgment when Messiah comes, but they think that the world has gotten so bad that God has withdrawn from the world. That's why he's quiet, because the world is so awful. And the only thing left to do is to grab his people out of it and obliterate the rest. Now that also sounds familiar. What many Christians in America believe about the end of the world sounds an awful lot like what Israel believed. That we're good to go, the world is yucky, and God is going to come take us away from this yucky place, take us to paradise, and burn the place behind us. You need to read your Bible. Heaven comes down. In the book of Revelation, the city of God comes down to creation. God is a God who comes down. He doesn't, he doesn't reach his hand in the dirty jar, grab the clean cookies, close the lid, and set it on fire. That is not what he's like. No, God says, I love all those cookies. I'm coming in. <laughs> How do we see ourselves on our campuses? Do we see ourselves as these, come on, Christians, come on. Shh, shh, come on. <laughs> we're just waiting for Jesus to come back. And if we're all holding hands, we'll all go together. <laughs> or do we see ourselves as God's rescue mission penetrating the rest of the camp? Are we jumping in the cookie jar with Jesus? I don't know where the cookie jar idea came from, but it's there, <laughs> and we're running with it. Paul calls the people of God the temple. Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? And he says, he uses that metaphor, he uses that um, um, communally, he also uses it individually. In the Old Testament, the temple was the umbilical cord between the created world and the heavens, which is where kind of God existed. And it wasn't this idea that, that the heavens were super way out their distance on the other side of space or something like that. It was the idea that the, the heavens were the immaterial part of creation where God lived. He was totally present but unseen. And the temple was what connected those two worlds. It was a thin place where the two worlds touch and where the power and experience and, and relationship with God is facilitated. Paul says, now that the Jesus Project has moved in, now that the Spirit is in every single one of us, which we'll talk about tomorrow morning, is so cool. Now that that's the case, every single one of you is an umbilical cord between the created world and heaven. You get to demonstrate what the heavenly life is like down on the ground. You get to be a part of connecting heaven to earth. You get to be a part of showing people this is what God is like. Let me tell you what he's done for me. Come experience this. We are not a closed membership club. We are a first aid team who are kind of limping ourselves because we're still in recovery, but we're in the process. We're helping rescue people. We take off our oxygen mask and be like, hey, oxygen's over here. Do you want some wine? Okay. Okay. Let's go to the source, though. I can only do this for so long. Right? That's what we're up to. 
The prophets are clear. Israel got it wrong. So much of, 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 of church, uh, American style, has it wrong. Of sort of this hunker down, make sure the world doesn't get us. Make sure we're not tainted. Keep ourselves clean. Don't you go to those secular schools. <laughs> Jesus says, no, 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 no. Get out of here. Stop being so be afraid of being infected and go do some infecting of your own. Hallelujah. He's up to it. Our lives are different because of it. Mm. So, the time of the Messiah will certainly be God's answer to evil, and it will be an all-comers answer to evil. The evil in you, the evil in me. I have wrecked some of God's lookalikes. I have hurt them. I have been, I have my own story. And God said, Jeff, either you can pay for this, because someone will pay, or I will pay for it. You choose. I said, Lord, if you will pay for it and clean it up, I would love for you to take care of this. Please help me. I, I can't take care of this myself. I need you to do this for me. Because that's the only hope of restoration. Mm. But it's for everybody. Now, the other side of the judgment coin, we've already gone here a little bit, is rescue, right? It's rescue. Israel believed that when Messiah comes, it won't all be death and judgment against wickedness. It'll also be a time of salvation. Already in the text we've read about the Messiah, we've seen this, right? Isaiah 61. Isaiah puts this song in the mouth of the Messiah. And it ends up being the first sermon Jesus preaches in Luke. Luke said, the first sermon I want to quote from Jesus in this pastoral biography I tell is this, when, when Jesus reads this, in the synagogue. The Messiah speaking. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. We already know who that is. Remember the anointing oil. The spirit comes upon this, this, this king language. Because the Lord has anointed me. King language. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives. And release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Mm. And again, this salvation, this comfort, this freeing, this healing is for everyone. Is for everyone. Just as judgment is universal on evil wherever God finds it, so is his rescue for those who will accept the life preserver thrown to them. Zechariah 2, 10 through 13. Another confrontation of Israel's assumptions. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. So far, so good for Israel. They're like, yes, daughter of Zion, that's us. We, God is going to come and live among us. He's going to move in. He's going to live in our neighborhood. He's going to walk. He's going to be our king in the here and now. Verse 11. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. 
Oh, Jesus, you're up to some incredible stuff. When Messiah comes, he brings salvation for everyone. Which means that we have to be careful. We have to watch out. We should never find ourselves saying or even thinking, nah, they would never become a Christian. If the scriptures are true, we should never say that. If there was anybody who was an unlikely convert, it was an anti-Christian terrorist named Saul. Not only was he against the beliefs of that group, he was an assassin of the leaders of that group. And he was an assassin motivated by his religious devotion. He was so committed to preserving Israel, so committed to preserving the way of being God's people that the Israelites had developed, that he was willing to attempt to squash out, to stamp out the new thing that this so-called Jesus, so-called risen Jesus, as if, had started. If there is anyone who is an unlikely character, Paul says, it was me. You could call me the chief of sinners. You could call me the worst because I was, I was violently opposed to what God was up to. And God grabbed me by the throat, took away my eyesight for multiple days and said, now listen. This is what I'm up to. This is what I want you to do. Don't discount anybody in your dorm. Don't discount any roommate you've ever had. Do not discount any family member in your family from, from being unreachable. Don't put anybody in those categories. Jesus doesn't. Jesus will chase them their entire life. He will offer and offer and offer and offer and offer and offer and offer his rescue until the day they die. Join his chase. At least pray. You don't have time to reach everybody on the planet. Hate to break it to you. You're a limited person. So go one relationship at a time, but pray. Pray for those in your sphere. Join what Jesus is up to. Jesus is ahead of you, I promise you. He promises you. Forget me. He promises you. Jesus is ahead of you in trying to reach the people who are around you, trying to make this offer of salvation. At the same time, we have to be careful. We don't find ourselves... This is, this is usually more of an unconscious attitude than anything we, we expressly stay, state or think. They're just too messed up to ever be a Christian. Their lifestyle choices are just so violent, so opposed to what Jesus is up to. There's no way. There's no way they would ever turn. That's what Jonah did to Nineveh. In the prophetic example we have of a prophet, prophet, who runs the other way, tells God no. Doesn't always work out so well, by the way. I don't know if a fish will come get you, but it does not work out well. It is possible, it is possible if we're not careful, if we're not watchful of our own hearts, if we're not inclusive the way Jesus is, and if we don't pray for inclusive hearts like his, for us to get so callous without even realizing it, that we would keep people from hearing the gospel because of our assumptions about who they are, based on what they look like, who they vote for, what crowd they hang out with, even what sexual lifestyle they embrace. 
You cannot exclude any category of person as long as person is in that list. Jesus is chasing every single person on the planet who has ever lived and will ever live. Join him. Join him. I'm telling you, the prophets sing. (sighs) And when Messiah comes, salvation visits the entire planet. The entire cosmos, planet and beyond. The entire created order is saved when Messiah gets here. Isaiah is all over this. Isaiah, again, poet laureate of the Old Testament. Isaiah is all over this. Isaiah 65. Where's my Isaiah 65 bookmark? There we go. Verse 17 through 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. A renewed heavens, a renewed earth, a brand new version of the first thing that was so good. Salvation comes to the trees. Salvation comes to the animals. Salvation comes to water, although I think water is pretty cool already. (laughs) The New Testament picks up on this strongly in Romans 8. Romans 8, 19. Paul writes this, Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. For those who are more ecologically sensitive among us, this is good news. There's a passage in the book of Revelation which depicts the very climax that this epic story of God saving the world builds towards, and it says this, Revelation 11, 18. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So how I interact with creation plays a role in my experience of God's wrath or God's salvation. It's enough to make you think about recycling. (laughs) Texas. I can't handle it. I have a can of soda and I'm like, ah! I'm sorry, Jesus! There's no recycling bin here! I could just take them all home. I could put them all in my carry-on and just take them and put them in a recycle bin when I get to Washington. Oh, how much do we consume at the expense of creation? I'm telling you guys, this Jesus Project has it all. You sign on with Jesus and you join the ecological saving movement. Jesus covers everything. Jesus covers the cosmos. This is not just about inviting Jesus into my heart, is it? Jesus asks us to be a part of his heart. It's about everything that exists getting repaired and put back together. 
<sighs> and if this is what's supposed to happen when Messiah comes, if God is an all-comers God, if God's judgment against wicked and offer of salvation is universally applied to everyone who will listen, to everyone who hears, what is Jesus like? When Messiah comes, this is how he will interact. What was life like with the Messiah? In Luke 5, verse 27 and following, Jesus is ridiculous, socially. Jesus is in Galilee, and he invites fishermen, small businessmen, to be his followers, right? He calls Peter, he calls Andrew, he calls James, John. Hey, you guys, small, small businessmen, fishermen, come follow me. Come join the massive project. Accept the fact that the kingdom of God is among you because I'm the king, and attach yourself to me. On we go. And then, he walks up to a local pirate, plundering his own people. In Galilee. A tax collector in Galilee. Who it is highly likely that Peter and Andrew and James and John paid taxes to because he's the local guy. And he says to Levi, you too, come join me. Come attach yourself to my mission. Come follow me. Come be a part of God's kingdom breaking into the world. Now what does that feel like for Peter and Andrew and James and John to see this crook invited to be a part of their core. What does that say about what Jesus is up to in the world? What does that say about what Jesus wants your campus to look like? What he wants your core to look like? Jesus will invite notorious people to the lunch table. And this matters. In that story, after he invites Levi to be his disciple, Levi is so flabbergasted that he throws a party. Levi throws a party right away. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. Come to my house for lunch. We're going to party. This is great news. He is fresh off the tax collector's bench and throws a party for all his sketchy friends to meet Jesus. <laughs> Can you imagine who was there? Again, Levi is, 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 you don't get more brand new than Levi, right? Like, he just became a Christian. Can you imagine what was going on over in the corners at this party? Can you imagine what it would have looked like for a rabbi to show up at a party like that? Now, it's even worse than you think. Because in the ancient world, who you ate with mattered. We don't have this to the extreme in our culture, right? We just eat. If you're next to me while I'm eating, let's have a conversation. But I'm busy. <laughs> How you doing? Good to meet you. Okay, you know, we have to wait till the other person chews. Because it's always the worst when someone puts a full bout of food in their mouth. So, tell me about your life. <laughs> right? So usually, you, like, you let the other person, he talks while you eat really quick so you can finish. And then the person finishes. Right? We've all been there. We do this. That's not how it works in the ancient world. And in fact, it still works differently in much of the Middle East. If you travel to the Middle East, this will be your experience. 
Back then, who you ate with makes a statement. You eat to declare something to the people you eat with and to anyone watching. There is a hospitality culture, a hospitality custom that says, if you are at my table, I accept you. Eating was this image of welcoming, of you are in my family. It's, it's welcoming hospitality. I welcome you into my home, and I offer you my protection as if you were one of my own in my own household. For as long as you are at my table, you are family. And if someone breaks the door down and tries to kill you, just by the fact that you are my guest, they'll have to get through me first. That is the, it's called table fellowship in the first century culture, and in much of the Middle East still today. If they invite you to a meal, they are extending their acceptance of you, their welcome of you into friendship and loyalty. And when this happens, in Luke 5, the religious experts ask a very revealing question. They say to him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You notice they do not ask, what are you doing? They ask, why are you doing this? They know exactly what he is doing. They know exactly what he is communicating. They don't ask, what are you doing? They ask him, why are you doing this? Why are you accepting these kinds of people? Why are you saying, these are my people? It's no wonder they call him deranged and crass and crude. Because he ate with, he said to prostitutes, and tax collectors, and, and general sinners is the, is the other phrase that's used to describe all kinds of weird, weird, sinful things. He ate with them. He said, you are my people. You are the people that I welcome at my table, that I accept, and that I invite to experience new life. Jesus gives value to human beings simply because they look like his dad. We are family. And so they have rights as people. They have value as individuals. We are, they are worth getting to know, worth rescuing, worth giving the opportunity to respond to God's rescue plan. And so are you and I. And so is every person on your campus. Every person in your family. Every person you ever meet is a God lookalike. And so in the, in the coming kingdom of God, how you treat Every image you come into contact with, whether it's a person who's checking your groceries out or filling your car with gas, that doesn't happen here because in Oregon you have to let them fill your car with gas. Anyway, it's kind of a pain. But you have to treat them as God's lookalike. You treat them as if they are family. You say, I welcome you into my life. What's your life like? Let me communicate your value. Let me communicate. And again, sometimes this happens in two seconds, right? We have these guys who stand, they're, they're the homeless guys in Bellingham, and they stand on the corner, and I become convinced that giving money doesn't assist them. 
And so there are, and, and there are so many great projects to be a part of in Bellingham. Me and Jessica, we give to these, these homeless ministries financially to help them pay for food and lodging and job training, all kinds of stuff. But what I will do every time I drive by, I felt convicted by the Lord to roll down my window and say hello. If it's too cold, I at least wave. I catch their eye and wave. Like, I just want to communicate, hey, you are a human being. I used to just drive past you. I used to try to avoid your eye. I don't say this out loud. This is in my heart. (laughs) I used to try to avoid eye contact so I wouldn't feel weird about not giving you money. But I just say, hey. I roll down the window and say, I hope you have a good day. Hey, I hope hope you're staying warm. They've got a big coat on. I'm trying to think creatively about what does it look like to live this out in my own life? What does it look like to, to treat the janitors on campus, to treat the waiters who serve you your food, who, who, the people who are cleaning up the dishes after us on this camp? What does it look like to treat them the way Jesus treated people at Table Fellowship? <sighs> Jesus' rescue is a return of the way the world is supposed to be. And the Messiah's life is the perfect mix of judgment and deliverance. He's the perfect mix of handling evil and rescuing the oppressed. And what's so amazing is that all of us fit into both categories, don't we? Jesus has the perfect mix of how to deal with you, how to deal with me, and how to deal with everybody around us. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. This is our last text for tonight. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 is a great picture of how the Messiah functions, of how Jesus wants to function in your life and in my life. Verses 1 through 4. Here is my servant, Remember, the Messiah was expected to be a servant. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the lands will put their hope. Again, Isaiah is poetically weaving images, common images of his day, to communicate what the Messiah is like. Reads were common, are on the lakes and riverbeds in Israel, and useful for all kinds of things. But when you walked through them, they would bend or break or snap. Sometimes, they would bend without breaking, and they would be noticeably bruised. And bruising can ruin the reed for the different things that it was used at the time. You'd normally cut it off and throw it away. But Isaiah takes this really common image that everybody could relate to. Everyone's seen those. Yeah, bruised reeds on the side of a, of a riverbank. 
And he says, this is how the Messiah will be to you. You who are like bruised reeds, injured, wounded, tender. He will not break you off and toss you away. The other image he uses, common image, is about the wick. A smoldering wick of a candle has just a tiny little bit of spark. We usually just pinch it out, right? You blow the birthday candles out and there's always that sort of orange glow and you either pinch it out or you blow it harder or whatever. Isaiah says the ministry of the Messiah will be to take those who have no life in them the barest spark of hope. And instead of snuffing them out, his predisposition will be to bring life to those tiny sparks, to breathe on it gently, and to nurse that small spark back to life. Is your faith like a smoldering wick, barely a spark left, ravaged by doubt, or pain, or experience. Jesus wants to breathe on you. He wants to breathe life back into a flame. It doesn't have to be a bonfire. It doesn't have to go crazy, but a candle. This is what the Messiah is like. This is what God is like, whose heart the Messiah lives out. Images of compassion of initiating friendship to the disenfranchised, the weak, the vulnerable. And this is what God wants to extend to all of creation, not just the religious or to the people who were raised with it, but to everyone. And he also wants to treat us like this. I think tonight Jesus wants to treat you like this. I have a few questions for you to write down. We'll just take about five minutes to reflect in quiet, just between you and the Lord. First question is Who do you find yourself tempted to exclude? Who are the, the Gentiles in your story? People who make you uncomfortable. People who you think, nah, I don't think they would come. Who do you tend to do that with? Second question. How do you feel about your life this weekend? Are you a bruised reed or a smoldering wick? If you feel like that's you, Jesus wants to return your strength. Jesus wants to breathe fresh life into your life and comfort you, breathe you back into life. Last question. Do you feel too dirty to come to Jesus? Whether you would call yourself a Christian already, I call myself a Christian, and there are times when I have felt, nope, this time, it's, this has got to be it. I have crossed the line too many times, or I've crossed too many lines. 
I, I just cannot be right with God. Or if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you would still call yourself an explorer, do you find the wickedness in your own life stacked up too high? You know what? This is too much for Jesus to manage. Hear the word of the Lord. Not a chance. There is no way you could be bad enough to exclude you from his offer. You cannot outdo God's offer. And you never will. So who have you excluded? Who are you tempted to, to treat as Gentiles? How do you feel this weekend? Do you relate to Isaiah's image? Because if you do, the Messiah wants to breathe fresh life into you. Wants to give you your strength back. And do you feel too dirty to come to Jesus? Because if you do, you better get over it. Let's pray. And then we'll just have five minutes for you to reflect on your own. Jesus, this is the best story going in the earth. This is the best worldview. It makes the most sense of the human experience. It makes the most sense of our longings. And it's the only one that's actually working in the world. As messed up as even the Christian movement is, it is working in people's lives. It has worked in my own life. It is functionally sound. It is deeply hopeful. Your promises are legit. Lord, I pray that we would be a people marked by inclusion. I celebrate you, Lord. What your spirit is up to in this group is inspiring for what I want to bring back home to Bellingham. Lord, I pray that if there are those who are here who are bruised reeds or smoldering wicks, that tonight would be their night of just contemplation and comfort from you. That they would experience the Messiah's breath in their minds, in their emotions, and in their experience. And Lord, I pray that if there are any who feel too dirty, who feel too guilty, who think, no, 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 this, I, I, am, I am too messed up to be accepted, that you would speak the truth to them. That you would say, I have accepted far worse than you. Trust me. There is no one who is outside of my offer. I entrust this processing time to you and how we respond in song or however else we respond afterwards to you, Lord. Please facilitate our time. Continue to facilitate our time. Amen.